0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is, of course, one of the most controversial chapters in all the Bible, and therefore we may find ourselves going a little longer than normal in this episode in order to do it justice. In chapter 1, Timothy was charged with putting down a heretical version of Christianity that was being taught in Ephesus by certain wayward elders being supported, it seems, by certain women whom Dick Lucas describes as having more time and money on their hands than they knew what to do with. Here in chapter 2, we see Paul beginning to address how that wrong doctrine was having a negative influence on the life of the church as a whole, and particularly on the character and content of their public worship. Bad doctrine will always lead to bad worship, and that is exactly what is going on here. We remember that the false doctrine in chapter 1, as best we can tell, had to do with vain speculations and irrelevant inquiry into some of the myths and genealogies associated with Judaism. These men were teaching deep and mysterious things and had moved away from the rather straightforward teaching of the gospel. And there have always been such people in the church. They are too easily bored with the central message of the Bible, and they move very quickly into mystery and minutiae, and can become hopelessly mired in esoteric speculations that do not benefit anyone, and that do not promote love, mutual service, and evangelism, but that rather puff up, distract and deceive everyone who comes into contact with them, and that is precisely what is happening here. And therefore, Paul says, these false teachers need to be shut down immediately so that the church as a whole can get back to the mission and the mandate they have been assigned. And so that is what we see Paul doing here in the opening verses of chapter 2. Listen to verses 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. What the church ought to be doing is praying for all people, and particularly for kings and leaders, so that we can lead a peaceful life, a life that is suitable for the spreading of the gospel. He makes that connection in verse 3. and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Peace is good, of course, because it is far more difficult to spread the gospel during times of war, chaos, and instability. Historians often comment on how the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was a major contributing factor in the rapid spread of the gospel across the ancient world. It was the absence of war and the presence of Good, well-maintained Roman roads that allowed missionaries like Paul to walk enormous distances to carry the message of Jesus Christ to distant lands. You should be praying for that to continue, Paul says. God wants the gospel message to get out into all the world so that all men may be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And if that is what God wants, then that is what the church should want as well. Now that phrase, God our Savior who desires all people to be saved, probably needs a little bit of explanation. What does it mean that God desires all people to be saved? The ESV uses the word desire to translate the Greek word phalo, which has a wide range of potential meanings. It can mean determines, delights in, wants, prefers, means for, would rather, or as the ESV has it here, desires. Now, of course, if it means that God determines that all people will be saved, then we have a real problem on our hands because clearly all people are not saved. And this would seem to mean that God's determining purposes can be thwarted. The Bible is certainly clear in affirming that not all people are saved. Therefore, it seems very unlikely that the correct meaning of phalo in 1 Timothy 2.4 is determines. It seems far more probable that it means desires or delights in. God desires for all people to be saved and delights in it when any do. If this is the meaning of the verse, then it is basically saying in the New Testament exactly what God said back in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 18.22. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live, closed quote. It seems then that the text is simply saying that it pleases God when people are saved. In that sense, the text is saying nothing more than what we learn in the parable of the lost sheep or the parable of the lost coin. There is indeed great rejoicing in heaven whenever a lost soul repents and returns to God. So again, that is what is pleasing to God. And therefore, pursuing that ought to be the business of the church. The job of the church is not to facilitate constant wrangling or theological speculation. That is what the false teachers were busying themselves with. Rather, the job of the church is to pursue the salvation of men and women, boys and girls. That is what pleases God. And therefore, that is what should occupy the church. And of course, this is a very... Urgent business because there is one God and only one mediator between God and man, the God man Christ Jesus. This is a very necessary statement because in every day and age there will be people who will happily concede that there is only one God, but who assume that there are many different ways to that God. But Paul knows that there is not. There is only one way through the life and death of Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for sinners. He says that in verse 6. In fact, he says that Christ was given as a ransom for all. And, and so we have to decide how we are to understand that all. Donald Guthrie offers one of the more concise answers. He says, the ransom, it is true, has infinite value, but the benefits require appropriation. Closed quote. Certainly, we could say more than that, but we wouldn't want to say any less than that. The apostle wants the church in Ephesus to pursue and to pray for the salvation of all people. God has richly provided an atonement that is adequate for the salvation of the whole world. Therefore, he says, let us give ourselves to the offering of that atonement to as many people as humanly possible, as opposed to all of this silly, irrelevant, speculative wrangling. That's the message of this chapter thus far. He continues in verse 8. I desire, then, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. In light of all that Paul has said about the proper purpose and focus of the church, particularly when it gathers for corporate worship— there are a few corrections that need to be made immediately. The men in Ephesus need to stop fighting over things they don't even really understand, and the women need to dress modestly. The church is not a debate hall, and neither is it a beauty pageant. It should be a place of prayer, modesty, godliness, and good works. Now, as we enter into verses 11 to 15, we enter into one of the most debated passages, probably, I think you could say, the most debated passage in the entire New Testament. More good Christians disagree over the correct meaning and application of this passage than about any other that I can think of. Much of the difference comes down to the extent to which we understand the historical situation behind a text to influence its authority and enduring application in the ongoing life of the church. Many Christians today spend a great deal of time talking about the special circumstances that existed in Ephesus at the time that Paul wrote this letter. It is sometimes said that the women in Ephesus were former cult prostitutes and that they had a great deal of money but had received very little education. And therefore, Paul is saying that it would be very unhelpful for these particular women, these uneducated former prostitutes, to engage in authoritative teaching in the church. These folks will then go on to say that because such a situation doesn't exist any longer, women are just as well educated as men in our culture, in many cases better educated. And therefore, because that gap has been closed, this particular prohibition has no further relevance in the church today. Two things need to be said by way of response. The first has to do with the general danger of adopting this sort of approach when it comes to interpreting the Bible. John Stott says helpfully here, The danger of declaring any passage of Scripture to have only local and not universal and only transient and not perpetual validity is that it opens the door to a wholesale rejection of apostolic teaching, since virtually the whole of the New Testament was addressed to specific situations, quote. Once you start saying that whatever was written to address a particular situation has no enduring relevance beyond that particular situation, you have given up pretty much the entire Bible. That sort of approach introduces a universal acid into the church that will very shortly eat its way through the entire body of Christian doctrine. The other problem is that it assumes a level of specificity with respect to the background issues That the text simply does not provide. Donald Guthrie, who seems himself to lean slightly in an egalitarian direction, admits as much in his commentary. He says, There may have been local reasons for this prohibition of which we know nothing. Closed quote. Did you hear that? Of which we know nothing. So much of the contemporary argument. For dismissing this passage out of hand has to do with the invention of very specific circumstances in Ephesus of which we know nothing. There is no historical evidence for any of it. There's nothing in the historical record to indicate that the women in Ephesus were any different than other Roman women of the time. There's nothing in the historical record to suggest that the women in this church had once been prostitutes. There is no evidence that they were less educated than the typical Roman woman. The entire foundation for the contemporary rejection of this doctrine rests on a complete fabrication, and I find that somewhat problematic. I'm inclined to take this text at face value. I don't doubt that there was a specific situation behind this teaching, but I don't see that as necessarily limiting its force or application, unless Paul somehow were to indicate that in the passage itself. But as we will shortly see, he does the opposite of that. He doesn't ground this teaching in the unique circumstances of Ephesus. He grounds his teaching in the account of creation the same way Jesus grounds his teaching on divorce in Matthew 19 in the account of creation. Therefore, if we assume that what Jesus said about divorce has enduring authority in the church, I see no reason not to assume the same with respect to what Paul says here in First Timothy 2 about gender. All right, now that's quite a lot of preamble. Let's read now what Paul has to say, beginning at verse 11. "'Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve.' And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, given the nature of this program and our desire to move reasonably quickly through whole books of the Bible, we simply cannot give this passage the attention that it deserves. Whole books have been written on this section of Scripture. I have one such book sitting on my desk right now. This is a battleground text. And as such, every single word of this passage has been debated and researched and debated afresh. Our task, however, is to give you the forest level view so that you can understand the flow of Paul's argument as a whole. The apostle seems to be saying that because the church is modeled upon the Christian home, it is appropriate for certain of the fathers, certain of the men in the church, to take the lead when it comes to the authoritative teaching, particularly as it happens in the gathered worship service. It seems that some of the women in Ephesus had assumed that because the church was revolutionary, with respect to the dignity and worth accorded to women by the gospel, that all distinctions now between male and female had been thus abolished. And let's admit that there is some warrant for that type of thinking. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 3, 26-29 had said, "'For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God.'" Through faith, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Close quote. So it may well be that Paul had preached something very similar to that in Ephesus, and, and these women will have heard that. And and they will have understood that they are now sons of God through faith. And they will have heard that there is no longer male nor female, but they were all one now in Christ, heirs according to promise. And it seems they have assumed from that that gender was a pre-Christian concept and has been wiped out and completely obliterated by the cross. That is not a completely unreasonable interpretation of that passage. Nevertheless, a closer look at Galatians 3 would seem to indicate that Paul is talking rather narrowly about our salvation graces in Christ and is not seeking to abolish all distinctions between men and women. And in fact, in other of his writings, he continues to speak about those distinctions. He says, for example, in Ephesians 5, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Close quote. So Clearly, some distinctions remain. The issue comes down then to whether we understand gender as an aspect of creation or as a consequence of the fall. If you think that all gender distinctions came about as a result of the fall and sin, then of course you might be inclined to think that they're all wiped out by the cross. But that doesn't seem to be what the Bible is saying. The Bible seems to indicate that gender was God's perfect gift before the fall. Certainly, it was complicated by the fall. Sin warps, distorts, and confuses many things that God originally gave for our good, but the purpose of redemption is to restore the created order, not to obliterate it. J.I. Packer writes along those lines, saying, the man-woman relationship is intrinsically non-reversible. This is part of the reality of creation— a given fact that nothing will change. Certainly, redemption will not change it, for grace restores nature, not abolishes it. Quote. I think that is true and very important for us to understand. And once you understand that, then the meaning of this passage becomes very easy to discover. Paul is saying that in the church, which ought to look like a picture of restored humanity, the men should embrace their God-given responsibilities and the women should embrace theirs, a point Paul expands upon in verse 15. Both assignments are incredibly important and bad things tend to happen when we ignore the responsibilities given to us and prefer the responsibilities given to others. That's the precise meaning of verse 14. George W. Knight III, for example, in his excellent commentary, writes, Verse 14 thus shows by a negative example the importance of heeding the respective roles established by God in the creation of Eve from Adam. Quote. Paul is saying that in the church generally, and particularly when the church gathers for corporate worship, the men of the church should take the lead in delivering the authoritative doctrine of the church. The women during such times in the service should stand down or be at peace. That is the meaning of the Greek word Hesukia, translated as quiet and quietly in the text. Obviously, Paul isn't commanding absolute silence. He speaks positively of women praying, singing, and prophesying in the church. And obviously, he isn't forbidding all forms of teaching. He talks about women teaching women and women teaching children and grandchildren elsewhere. But when it comes to the authoritative teaching time in the gathered church, the sermon portion, we would say, the women are to learn and listen quietly. Thus, he says here exactly what he says in 1 Corinthians 14. George Knight III is once again very helpful, commenting on these largely parallel passages. He writes, both there and here, both in 1 Corinthians 14 and here in 1 Timothy 2, Paul's prohibition of women teaching would prevent them from serving as elders or ministers. Well, given the responsibilities assigned to pastors and elders, I don't see how you could avoid that conclusion. Now it is a peculiar commentary on our culture and on our day and age that we tend to receive this text as a gross injustice toward women taking that viewpoint i think requires you to overesteem the pastorate and to underestimate the incredible dignity and privilege of mothering it is hard to imagine anything more important or anything more culture-shaping than the privilege of raising little boys and girls who have been made in the very image and likeness of Almighty God. That is the job we should all aspire to because the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And so Paul would not have understood himself as demoting Women, he would have understood himself merely as saying that we've all been given wonderful and important things to do, and now we must get on with it. And that is precisely what he does say in verse 15. Speaking of the women, he says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, I suppose if you read this verse Apart from everything that has preceded it, you would likely consider it the strangest verse in all the Bible. Surely Paul isn't saying that women will be saved by the mere act of having a child, and surely he isn't saying that women who cannot have a child are condemned to perdition. So what in the world is he saying? There are several options that you can find in the literature, but it seems to me that really only two are credible, and one of them seems slightly preferable to the other. Some scholars believe this to be a reference to the birth of Messiah— Paul then, in essence, is saying, how in the world could anyone undervalue the task of childbearing? After all, it was by a woman bearing the Christ child that salvation came into the world. Thus, as women continue to do this, provided they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control, they will be saved by the child a woman has born. Now, in truth, I think there's a lot to be said for this interpretation. After all, Paul has been talking about Adam and Eve, so his mind is back in Genesis 2-3. to And in Genesis 3, God says to the serpent, actually in the hearing of the woman, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Closed quote. Theologians refer to that as the prot-evangelium or the first giving of the gospel. God promises that a child will be born to a woman who will crush the head of our enemy and bring us home to God at some considerable cost to himself. Well, of course, that is the gospel. And and so Paul may simply be saying here that it is by women continuing to believe in that promise that all people, men and women, may now be saved. That is a, a fair, if rather complicated, explanation of the passage. The other explanation is simpler and therefore i think somewhat preferable on this interpretation paul is saying to women here what he says elsewhere in this very letter to timothy in 1 timothy 4:16 he says keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching persist in this for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers so paul is saying there that if timothy embraces the calling that god has put on his life and endures in it he will be saved and others will be saved through him again Paul is not saying that Timothy will earn his salvation by persisting in pastoral ministry. He is simply saying that the challenges of pastoral ministry will be the context in which Timothy exercises, displays, refines, and ultimately proves his faith in the Lord. Very often in the Bible, faith is proven through a difficult act of faith. We think of Abraham offering Isaac or Rahab and the spies. James makes this point in James chapter 2. Real faith is worked out in the context of a particular challenge. And that is what Paul is saying here. For women, faith will be worked out and proved by embracing the priority of childbearing. That's what faith is. Faith is obeying God against what your eyes see and against what your culture says. That's faith for Abraham, for Rahab, for Timothy, and for the women in Ephesus, and for all people still today. Help, Lord Jesus. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to a slightly longer episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.intoftheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. It'd be great to see you there. And I hope to see you again tomorrow right here for another episode of Into the Word.